Hi, I'm Scott Dunn, and welcome to the first season of Voices of ULI, a podcast brought to you by the Urban Land Institute Asia Pacific. In conversation with thought leaders and industry experts, I'll be asking them to reflect personally on their career journeys, particularly on the actions that they've made that have had significant impact on land use and development today, and what their vision holds for the future of our communities that we live in. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Benjamin Shaw, who's the CEO of Grosvenor Asia Pacific. Ben, welcome to Voices of ULI. Uh, I wanted to start a little bit with your uh, early days. Where was it that you grew up and what were some of those influences that you had early in your career that really helped you think about urbanization and real estate development? Sure. Well, great to be here with you, Scott. Um, I grew up in the United States and Hong Kong, so very much a bicultural uh, childhood, bicultural actually my whole life. In terms of early influences, urbanization, I'd probably point to, you know, two things. One is just a lot of travel, seeing different cities, different places, uh, especially, you know, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, but in particular in Asia, uh, when I started as a fresh grad uh, in the Jardine Rastin Management Training Program, and I was seconded with um, with another MT from Hong Kong land. Um, I was I was seconded to Mandarin Hotel Group, and he was seconded to Hong Kong land, and we were sent to go live and work in uh, in Beijing. So, what were sort of the, some of the things that you learned from the uh, Matheson program? So we were we were doing a lot of feasibility studies, a lot of site inspection. We were learning about the laws at the time um, around ownership and development, and you know that was, those were the early days in terms of property development mainland China. Um, so we lear- learned a lot about the markets, lear- learned a lot about how an international firm, which has, you know, which, which has a, had and had, still does have interests all over the world, but in particular in different parts of Asia, would look at uh, markets like China, which at the time were, were very young and, and, and only just starting to modernize, urbanize, see new office towers, new hotels, different typologies in terms of the built environment. Uh, start to see, you know, the beginnings of of some pretty significant, but what would ultimately pretty be pretty significant population growth, uh, infrastructure growth, transportation, connectivity, etc. You're in China, kind of as this first wave of transformation was starting to happen, uh, where you had this amazing amount of of requirement just to house people, to create employment centers, to build things. Um, at that time, what were some of the, the projects that you were working on? Yeah, so uh, I worked on a couple of diff- a number of different projects, but in Shanghai in particular, uh, Mandarin at the time was looking at joint venturing with uh, Portman Group on what was one of the first generation of mixed-use you know, hotel, residential, office, retail, mixed-use projects, obviously in Nanjing Road, still, you know, obviously still standing today. But back then, that was first generation. We were looking at at getting involved in that project uh, when they were rebranding uh, the hotel and also looking at other projects with the Portman Group, um, other projects in Shanghai. Uh, similar projects that didn't come to fruition or were acquisitions in Beijing. Um, and then similar formats, usually smaller scale in other cities 
uh, in mainland China. So, you know, good exposure to, as you were referring to earlier, kind of first generation mixed use projects, first generation uh, mixed use developments, multi-component residential, hotel, office, retail projects. Uh, the first, you know, Plaza 66 came up during that generation. Uh, Xintian D uh, would come up a few years later, uh, but also of that vintage. How much was it important that the long-term plan for that neighborhood, that district, played a role in terms of your um, decisions on moving forward? Good question. Um, I don't think the vocabulary back then was necessarily what it is today in terms of planning, but planners still had similar ideas and concepts in terms of you know a project, and whether it be an office tower or shopping mall or whatever. I, you know, the concepts, we don't, so we, you know, back then the language wasn't really what it was today, but people still cared about, hey, this needs to connect with the rest of the city, the street, the transportation. I think perhaps there was less sensitivity to it because developers didn't necessarily think that way. Again, in, in mainland China, certainly, um, you know, Xintiandi was one of the first where it was very pedestrian oriented, very street-facing, open air in many, many places, most of the places, at least in the very initial phases of development. That was, back then, that was a completely different approach. That wasn't a project that we were directly involved with, but seeing it, uh, seeing it come to life was, was, was exceptional. And, you know, back then it was, and today, you know, still very much a, a, a groundbreaking project. Uh, we as Grosvenor, we, we have the pleasure of partnering with, with Shoyan uh, in Nanjing. They, they take a lot of the same approach to different projects around mainland China, have done so for a long, long time. But, you know, examples of where planning had a role to play, I think, were, were apparent kind of everywhere we went. It really, you know, private sector developers didn't always necessarily think beyond the, the building boundary. I found it fascinating during that, that time period where you'd have these uh, single developments or a project like Shengtendi or Jinji Lake or, you know, these kind of milestone projects that someone um, took a little bit of an adventurous approach, um, often adopted a very international um, idea, brought in usually people from, from around the world to help in terms of executing on these projects. Then they would come off exceptionally well. And all of a sudden it became this <laughs> kind of, gold standard to then repeat because you had hundreds of cities kind of going through the same sort of transformation. All of a sudden, everybody wanted a Shitendi, everybody wanted a Jinji Lake. And I guess I speak about that in terms of trying to deal with the quality of these projects as they get replicated in multiple cities. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, People, you know, very much tried to take a cookie cutter approach. Um, And I think along the way, as I think you're suggesting, some of the authenticity or the the sensitivity to the surrounding environment may have gotten lost. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, the, the, po- the positive way to look at it is that people saw that a certain formula or a certain approach to quality and sensitivity to the surrounding environment worked and tried to do it elsewhere. I think the negatives are obviously, I think, as you're alluding to, you know, just transplanting something that worked in one place to another city with a different historical architectural built environment context didn't, you know, wasn't a guarantee of success. And also it's kind of a little bit of a Disneyland approach, which is you kind of build the same thing no matter where you are in the world. And that, mm. that has a lot of limitations. 
you know, Discovery Bay, I think, is an, a, an incredible example early, early on. Um, I, I lived in Discovery Bay for a couple of years, so I kind of understand the, the nuances in terms of lower carbon, pedestrianization, no cars. So maybe it, what was special about that kind of development model and how did you take some of those parts and then be able to expand that across other types of projects? Yeah, I mean, I had, I had the privilege and pleasure of working on a number of projects within Discovery Bay, and it was it was always hugely exciting, um, but also a real eye opener in terms of the challenges of mixed use at a at a very large scale, and the complexity of having to deliver uh, service amenity product in in a, in a very large scale residential environment and all of the in particular the infrastructure transportation ferries buses the you know the the, the restrictions on private car ownership golf carts uh, getting people in it was a real eye opener and and uh, and a real a wake up call uh, in many ways on the less glamorous kind of nitty gritty of how do you actually deliver quality in a in, in that format in the, in a large scale mixed use Format in particular, I think um, mixed use that has that's very heavy in terms of residential, and also in terms of you know f- how do you deliver that financially? Um, it, you know, very very challenging when you have to run and build the infrastructure, and also have the cash flow, which doesn't necessarily generate a co- lot of cash flow. Sometimes is 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 loss making. Um, and then be able to you know continue to build a place that sort of Discovery Bay encapsulated. So residential development for Strata Sale, selling residential uh, units by phase, was a way to generate cash flow to continue to build infrastructure in a normal urban environment. The infrastructure is usually delivered by the government. You know, uh, transportation is run by you know the subway company MTR in the case of Hong Kong, um, but having it be such large scale and uh, was just it was it was a phenomenal privilege and opportunity, but also uh, it was it was uh, it was a real eye opener in terms of the complexity. Um, you know, the, the district councilor in Discovery Bay became very very anti development, which gummed up a lot of the the work of HKR in terms of delivering certain things to residents. Transportation always complex. Phasing always complex. So I was going to ask you about about West Kowloon, and actually, I mean, maybe could, you could talk a little bit about your role. Um, I know that the M Museum is opening up in, in November. I mean, that must be incredibly a proud moment for you in terms of that actually happening. Because West Kowloon, as a district, has been you know talked about, planned for quite some time now. So maybe talk a little bit about your your role and um, how it's progressing now? Yeah, so I sit on the board of both the West Kowloon Cultural District, so it's the main governing body for the entire district, and then I also sit on the board of the M Plus Museum, which is obviously it's specific to the M Plus Museum, which, which, will, which will open in November. So just to be clear, the ICC and the, the office tower there, the shopping mall, the, um, the airport, um, Airport Station, MTR, all of that. that that's outside of the West Kowloon Cultural District. It's adjacent to it. Uh, mm-hmm. And the high-speed rail is also adjacent to, but not part of the West Kowloon Cultural District. So they're not sort of within the West Kowloon 
agricultural district mandate, but they are absolutely important in terms of the district connecting with both the high-speed rail, which connects with um, with Shenzhen and Guangzhou and mainland China, um, but also in terms of ICC um, and just where, you know, West Kowloon is on the waterfront. It faces the harbor. It's a 40-hectare district. Um, and it, uh, it connects that ICC, the high-speed rail, um, the street access to even, you know, eventually Canton Road, for example, this is how this district um, connects with the rest of this part of the Kowloon Peninsula and, and, and the population and the, the life of you know, the rest of Hong Kong. Yes, it's taken a long, long time. It has been delayed multiple times and it's been, and it will continue to be a very, very super long-term project. And I think anything of the scale by nature will be long-term. Um, part of it, though, does have to do with the ambition and also the, the, the original Norman Foster design, the master plan, the, the MLP for the project, and what the district, and this is a little bit, this is definitely not a little bit, this is definitely before my time. The commitment of the district um, in terms of key design decisions. So I'll just give you two, um, I actually can just give you one design decision, which is ambitious, transformative, but also has, you know, has created a lot of delays. The, the Norman Foster plan called for making the district primarily pedestrian. Mm-hmm. So that one principle immediately moved all roads, car park, vehicular access, with the exception of fire access, um, EVA, underground, moved everything underground, right? So, and Scott, you'll know this much better than I do, right? You do that on harborfront land, on harborfront landfill, and you, you, your construction times is going to be much longer. Yeah. The geotechnical, the physical infrastructure that you have to develop in order to to support that as a as a design principle is is enormous. And keep in mind, you have multiple existing um, subway lines <laughs> crisscrossing right. the basement, so you have to build around that stuff. But in terms of what that will do, in terms of placemaking, in 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 making a district which is um, pedestrian friendly, primarily pedestrian friendly. Again, there there is on grade um, vehicular access. There will be electric um, mini buses. There's no monorail or anything like that. Uh, and then, there's, of course, there's EVA uh, emergency and fire access. But otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be pedestrian, com- completely pedestrian oriented. So you think the cost benefit was is going to be worth it then? Well, I think as a as a gift to Hong Kong, as a project for Hong Kong, the outcome will be phenomenal. It's, it has been painful, will continue to be painful in terms of delivering this project. In terms of cost, I don't, I'm not sure a private sector developer would have the appetite or the private sector developer, shareholders, owners, and financial ability to kind of withstand or you know, commit to something like this would, would, would you know, really pass any most boards. Um, but from a from a city, from a Hong Kong point of view, from a city point of view, from a built environment point of view, I think it's a hugely powerful commitment and decision. We talked about the model of development and that that 
uh, initial village center and that idea of bringing people together, I guess, gets into the, also an idea in terms of some of these earlier developments um, about the, you know, the neighborhood, the revitalization, and um, how do you attract people into those kind of places? We talked a little bit about Shintendi and, you know, more of the, the adaptive reuse, some of the arts and culture and how you use culture to draw people together. And I think this is something that, you know, in your current role with Groner, um, that's a, a component to it. And maybe if you can talk a little bit about um, how your role as the CEO now and, and how you think about art, culture, and community within the work that you do. Sure. So um, it's it's very near and dear to Grosvenor to to take a holistic approach to all the projects that we do across the globe. Uh, this has a lot to do with kind of our company DNA and history in terms of the West End of London, Mayfair and Bulgaria in particular. Um, so the sensitivity, the level of commitment. The experience, the track record, the ex- you know, working with a very wide range of tenants, of partners, of the local council, uh, that's very much part of the Grosvenor DNA. We take that approach, even if it's a single building. Uh, we recently started investing into Ginza in Tokyo. So that was three and a half years ago. We now have two investments. We're looking at a, at a third uh, in this part of Tokyo, and the approach is is very much is is very similar. We want to know where we're investing. We want to know what's going on. We want our assets, our investments, to be sensitive to the streetscape, the neighborhood, the adjacent buildings, the buildings across the street. We want to know what's happening in terms of the demographic, other owners, the local population, what NGOs are active, what are the needs of that community, what are the needs. What, are there any groups in particular that, that might be recipients of some of our philanthropic giving? Um, so we take a holistic approach. Going back to your question about arts and culture, you know, in, in Mayfair, we have a lot of arts and culture, whether it's private sector, whether it's institutional. Uh, I'm involved in Hong Kong, um, obviously, in a number of projects that are mostly sort of quasi-government. Well, I guess one of them is Jockey Club, um, not government, which are adaptive reuse formats where traditional building Daegun in particular. So that's, I mean, these types of projects are, they're a lot of fun, but certainly without, you know, whether it's Hong Kong Drug Club, Hong Kong government, without government support, they, they, you know, the business case in terms of private sector development is, is usually quite challenging. Something I wanted to talk about in terms of cycles of the market um, and, um, being able to smooth out some of those cycles. So a lot of the cycles, you know, pressured from from financial markets in terms of how it goes up and down. And you can see against the backdrop of what's happening in China right now, um, where they haven't had this kind of real pressure on a development cycle. If you look at, at London and how it's transformed over time, and then you compare it to kind of what we started with in terms of the transformation of a lot of the Asian cities and how they've grown very quickly and they're starting to go through these cycles now. So maybe you talk a little bit about that experience in terms of what Grosvenor is being through as a company. The, the commitment to being, to having a long-term view, uh, commitment to quality and commitment to thinking holistically about an asset, a building, a project. I think 
these, you know, and, and I would extend the, the thinking about neighborhood and community and and thinking holistically. I would I would put environmental sensitivity into that category, into that bucket, if you will. These things, exactly everything we're talking about, is is very much part of the the legacy, the history, the DNA, the philosophy, and the culture of Grosvenor after 300 plus years. And you know, I think we t- we take great great pride in that. It permeates everything we do across the globe. I'm I'm pretty safe in saying that what's happened in China in one generation, in, in you know, in the past 30 years in terms of built environment, has been historic. So what you've seen is in a very short span of time, the creation of a, of a huge middle class and the creation of the building, literally the building of, you know, dozens of amazing, huge, significant cities of scale, you know, over, over a hundred, uh, hundred new centers of significant population. You know, if China's urbanized, you have mega cities, you have, you know, smaller cities are, "Quote unquote," smaller cities or cities of, you know, like a million, million and a half people. Like that's like same population as San Francisco. Now, obviously, you add up Silicon Valley and Oakland and East Bay and so on, and obviously, it gets much bigger. But um, so it's been absolutely historic. I think what's interesting about that pace of urbanization is uh, where to next, and and we're trying to figure this out as Grosvenor. We are continuing to invest in mainland China. We've you know, we, we are focusing on the Greater Bay Area. Uh, in addition to Hong Kong, we are focusing on the YRD, the Yangtze River Delta region. Uh, we've invested uh, twice in the past two and a half years, three years in uh, in Nanjing. Uh, we're actively looking at projects in Shanghai. Uh, we'd love to do something in Guangzhou or Shenzhen or elsewhere in the Greater Bay. Um, we also recognize that urbanization and, and some of the old Formats, mixed-use office developments or mixed-use components, mixed-use developments, residential, office, hotel, this typology, because of technology, because of lifestyle patterns, work patterns, because of e-commerce, they are also changing. So what format is of the future, uh, for the future, what... uh, You know, what will happen to, to, to buildings that were built in the last generation, whether they're relevant or as strong, are they prepared environmentally for... Uh, you know, for warming, for for the you know for the future, these are these are all part of the moving parts, and we're we're certainly trying to figure figure it out and, and price and continue to invest and develop. Yeah, and I guess that's where um, I think there will be a lot more adaptive reuse, like you said, in terms of uh, some of these older gray buildings. And then to your point earlier on adding value, that it seems to me that the cities that are investing, and you can see this. Um, in the last five or six years that are investing more in the environmental aspects of the city and the cities that are getting that mix right and allowing for that better, bigger fabric and ideally attract better quality developers uh, into those cities to be able to participate in that building out of this next evolution of urban form. Absolutely. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, there's a shift going on in China right now with the development community you know, on balance sheets and those kind of things. But ultimately, uh, people will survive, they'll come out of it, and uh, there'll be a continued, there's strong fundamentals in terms of that growth of middle class, yeah. um, a, a flight to, to quality, improvement of the urban environment. So 
in all of that, there is a lot of competition between yes, yes. You know, all of these cities. So is there certain things that would help in terms of what cities could do to attract developers? No, certainly. I think, well, I think, first of all, I'd say a lot of the city governments are doing a lot of the right things. So they're making their cities greener. They're making their cities more livable for local populations. Uh, infrastructure build, I think, speaks for itself. If you look at the connectivity between cities, as well as connectivity and transport infrastructure within cities, I think both are impressive. I think we would love to see local governments continue to do that. Uh, we would we would like to see local governments to continue to make cities less car dependent, uh, to continue to make cities greener, uh, decarbonize. Uh, but I think the the commitment from the central government and local governments uh, is is pretty strong. Uh, we'd love to see, I think, in certain cities, a little bit more control in terms of office supply. Uh, a lot of cities are oversupplied in terms of office. Um, that's probably a little bit at the margin. Um, but uh, I think we're, we're very positive in terms of what, you know, what, what, what local governments are doing. We just encourage them to do, you know, to do more, keep pushing the envelope. So Voices of ULI, um, ties in with uh, the mission for Urban Land Institute, which is really around shape the future of the built environment for transformative impact in communities worldwide. Ben, what does this uh, statement mean to you? Um, it, it means a ton to me. I think it's, it, it means the world to me. It's a, it's a powerful mandate. It's a relevant mandate. And it's an exciting mandate. So cities are where it's happening. I don't think that'll change. I think Asia is a place that has a ton of activity, but there's a ton of exciting, interesting things that are happening everywhere in the world, uh, outside of Asia, in Asia, North America, Europe, elsewhere. I think the ULI mission is, is, is compelling. Again, it's, it's powerful, it's relevant, it's exciting and fun. Yeah, I think the integrated uh, discipline nature of ULI is quite compelling in terms of being able to bring a lot of different stakeholders to help to solve some of the complex challenges that we're facing in our communities. Um, and it's been explosive. The way in which the cities have transformed over the last 20 years has been incredible. And I think over the next 20 years, um, to see what will happen, it's, it, it, we're in an incredible place to participate in that. Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely agree. So Ben, thank you very much for joining us on Voices of ULI today. It was a great discussion. We covered many parts of Asia and it'll be incredibly exciting to see where we go from here. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. A real pleasure. Thank you, Ben, for joining us on this episode of Voices of ULI. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You're probably listening to this podcast at the ULI Asia Pacific Reimagine. And I hope you're enjoying this unique, interactive event and find inspiration in reimagining conventional ideas about our cities, business, and the life in the ever-changing world of real estate. In the next episode, we'll be interviewing Hiro Morisan, who's the Director and Executive Vice President of Mori Building and the Chair of ULI Japan.